It's a pleasure to be here this evening. My wife, Patricia, and I drove up from San Antonio, Texas, where it was, uh, I think the day we left, the next day was 92 degrees. Uh, the blue bonnets are in blossom. You know, it's, uh, you know uh, uh, spring is gone. We're, you know, into the first days of summer. I was really surprised coming up here. Uh, I really thought the, the price of gasoline would have gone up more than it did, but it was about 3.35 a gallon in San Antonio and, and held pretty steady all the way up here. I have a good friend in San Antonio who is sort of a, uh, a country philosopher, and he has theories about everything. And uh, he told me the other day, he said, I have a theory on why gasoline prices always rise and they never seem to go down again. And uh, I've got to humor this guy because, you know, sometimes his theories are really pretty weird. And I said, well, what's your theory? And he said, well, the theory is that you know, we don't check our oil level often enough as a nation. And I said, you know, I said, I don't understand anything about that at all. He says, well, you know how you check your oil in your truck? I said, yeah. He said, well, you go out and you raise the hood, you pull a dipstick out, you wipe it off, you stick it back in the hole, and you pull it out and check and see if you need to add oil or not. And he said, he said that, that's how you do it for your truck. And he says, but we don't do that as a nation. And I said, you know, I still don't understand a darn thing you're telling me. And he said, well, he said, think about it now. He said, he said, all our oil is in Alaska. He said, Gulf of Mexico. He said, we have oil in Louisiana and Texas and Oklahoma. I said, yeah, I understand that. And he said, and all the dipsticks are in Washington, D.C. <laughs> but I'm delighted to be here this evening. I thank all of you for putting on the little bit of snow this afternoon. I'll, uh, I can't wait to get back to San Antonio and tell them about this huge snowstorm we, we uh, went through up in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I've narrowed down the topic of the, uh, my talk tonight to a, a very specific period of time, uh, and, and that's a wild weasel operations, excuse me, I'm wrong button, of course, um, that, that happened at Tockley Royal Thai Air Force Base, and during a specific period of time, and those were the the, uh, the the months that I was there, and that was from uh, July of 1966 to uh, May of 1967. And we're going to talk about these guys right here. This was my wild weasel class. Uh, the, it was class 3-2, three, three being 105s and two being the second class. Um, and uh, and what, what happened to this group of people. And to a, a, a lesser extent, in war story number two, we're going to talk about these guys. This is the 354th TAC Fighter Squadron. Uh, this was taken in about April of, uh, of uh, 1967. That, uh, some people there, that, uh, that's me right now. Fumble fingers here. That's me right there in the back. That's Merle Dethelson, Medal of Honor recipient right there. Uh, squadron Commander Lieutenant Colonel Phil Gast, who retired as a three-star general, and uh, let's see, Max Brestel, Mig Killer, good bunch of people, and we'll talk a little bit about them. But for those of you who may not know what the Wild Weasel program was, in uh, 24th of uh, July 1965 was the, the first time a surface-to-air missile was used in combat to shoot down a, an enemy airplane, and it shot down a uh, an Air Force F-4 uh, 
damage another uh, pretty bad, badly. Um, it, it caused a lot of, lot of consternation. Uh, we had known that the, the missiles were being put into North Vietnam for months ahead of time. The uh, uh, chairman of the Central Intelligence Agency and the chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff all recommended to President Lyndon Johnson that the sites be destroyed before they became operational. And um, the, uh, they refused, the president refused to do so. Uh, McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, refused to take that recommendation to the president even. Um, the uh, State Department guy at the time, one guy was quoted as saying, well, you don't think they're going to really use those missiles to shoot at you, do you? You know, and, um, you know, you sort of wish that he had been there. You know, a year later, we could have sent him up there and see if they shot. But there were a bunch of committees that were formed. One was the, uh, the and the main one, as far as I'm concerned, was the Dempster Committee run by a, a Brigadier General Casey Dempster, um, who was a, uh, a World War II uh, veteran um, and uh, it, who was running a research, one of the research and development divisions at the Pentagon. Uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff had their group. They called theirs Prong Tong. The Tactical Air Warfare Center at Eglin Air Force Base had a group of people together to try to figure out how to handle the missile problem, as did Pacific Air Force Headquarters. And uh, a lot of the same people were on all these committees, and, and the, uh, some of the conclusions that they came up to was that, well, we needed radar warning receivers on all our fighter aircraft. We need some jammers for them. Uh, and one thing which was, was uh, interesting was that they needed timely processing of photographic intelligence. Um, it turned out that, that this was well before Polaroid film, if you can remember this. So when, a, when an airplane flew over a target and took a picture of something happening, um, you know, by the time he got back to his base and, you know, the, the staff sergeant went out and he undid the Zeus fasteners and took the camera out and fastened it back up and took it into the, to the Photoshop to be developed. And by the time a, a person finally looked at the developed film and, and, and tried to figure out what was on there, um, flagged something as being an important thing that, that uh, you know, someone needed to know about. Uh, by the time copies of the film were made, uh, it was taken out and put on a T-39 aircraft and taken to the base that needed that uh, intelligence information. It was not unusual for three days to have transpired. Uh, the particular SAM site, a surf-to-air missile site that shot down the F-4, um, at that, when it was shot down, uh, no one knew that that missile site was there when, in fact, it had been photographed two days before. It's just that the photograph hadn't been processed. So, and they needed a SAM killer, a surf-to-air missile killer, and that's where the, uh, the wild weasel came into being. The committee came up with some, some other really weird recommendations. They, they gave some briefings to the, the heads of General Electric and Westinghouse and, you know, all the, the, uh, the big uh, defense industries and got these heads together. And actually someone came up with a recommendation of taking surplus B-47s, making them into drones, loading them up with high explosives and going in there and crashing them into the sand sites. And, uh, and that was, that obviously wasn't chosen, but, but the SAM killer was, uh, was a wild weasel program. It initially was done with F-100 aircraft. I'm not going to talk about that. That's a wonderful story in itself. 
I'm going to talk about the, uh, the F-105. And uh, in about um, May of 1966, I had just completed a, a, a nine-month TDY in the island of Guam and B-52s flying arc-like missions, arc -like missions in South Vietnam and uh, managed to, to get in the wild weasel program. Uh, and, and there's some comparisons which I'll make a little bit later about how strategic air command and B-52 crews were treated versus the circumstances that the 105 guys lived under. And there's a stark contrast. The, uh, the training was, was short. We started out with 10 days at Long Beach International Airport. Uh, we showed up there with uh, eight pilots and eight electronic warfare officers. I was an electronic warfare officer in, uh, from Strategic Air Command, as I said. Uh, the only thing that I remember about that training was that um, in the first day we got in there and um, the instructor asked for everyone to stand up and tell something about themselves. You know, where were you born? Where are you from? You know, are you married? How many kids do you have? Uh, how long you've been flying airplanes? Uh, you know, where, where have you been stationed? And uh, everybody in the, all 16 of us got up and said who we were and, and uh, you know, told a little bit something about us. And the guy said, um, we're going to take a coffee break at the end when everybody's has given their uh, introduction. And at the end of the coffee break, you come back in, and you're going to pick out who you're going to fly with. And uh, you're, you're going to go through your whole training with program with this guy, and so you better pick carefully, and you're going to fly your whole 100 missions with that person. So um, it's surprisingly, with, with, uh, with this poor choice of uh, uh, this poor selection process, generally it worked out pretty well. I wound up teamed with a guy by the name of Ed Larson, a longtime F-105 guy. Uh, and we were both former enlisted guys, so I, maybe that was the reason that we picked each other out. He had been in security service as a uh, Morse code operator. I had been a jet engine mechanic in B-36s and B-47s. So we picked each other out. We decided, you know, we'd, we'd fly together. And it was sort of interesting to... The flamboyant people sort of tended to go together, you know, and, and uh, I guess there's, you know, sort of a chemical attraction there. But uh, the um, anyway, we all uh, joined up and we had some more classes that day. And that night we all went to, uh, they had a hospitality room for us at the motel we were staying at, which was my first experience with a hospitality suite run by North American Aviation. So there was, you know, some adult beverages there. And, um, and it was really pretty interesting. We had a few drinks, and then we went out and got in the car, went out to a restaurant to eat. And um, uh, Ed was sitting across the table from me. And, uh, you know, the, uh, we gave our orders, and, um, you know, the, the soup course came, and I looked over, and there's this guy that I'm going to fly 100 missions sound asleep with his face about an inch from his bowl of soup. <laughs> And I thought, what in the hell have I got myself into here? <laughs> but it turned out he was really an excellent pilot. Uh, he just had a tendency to fall asleep a lot. <laughs> uh, anyway, we went from there to um, Nellis Air Force Base and, uh, excuse me, Nellis Air Force Base. And um, at a six-week course, we were uh, way at the end of the flight line. Those of you that, that um, 
Wharton uh, Ellis years ago, the Thunderbird hangar used to be way at the end of the flight line there and uh, where the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds uh, used to hang out when they weren't uh, flying, off flying air shows. And they had an upper balcony there that was vacant, and that's where we had our classes. Um, the instructors that we had were the guys who were in the F-100 Wild Weasel program. And most of them had been uh, overseas, uh, you know, and flown some missions. Uh, some of them had killed SAM sites. A whole lot of them had not. But they were the best instructors available. Um, I, I remember one class they were talking, uh, someone was giving a lecture about, uh, about surface-to-air missiles, about the missile itself. And, and he, I remember him saying, well, he said, um, you know, if you're going to go in and try to find this missile site and shoot at it, uh, chances are you're going to get shot at yourself. You know, the missile is going to shoot at you. And uh, he said, but don't worry about that because, um, you know, you can dodge them with your airplane. He said, you can really dodge. They're easy to dodge. And, uh, you know, it seemed like the guy was awfully glib, you know, and, all, you know, and, and almost to the point of being flippant. And somebody raised their hand because he said, well, you, you wait till the missile gets really close and you pull up really hard and turn into it and it'll miss you. And um, somebody raised their hand and said, well, how close do you let it get before you do that? And this guy got this real blank look on his face. And it was obviously he had never done this, you know. He had heard someone else say that you could do this. And, uh, and he sat there and he thought a little bit and he said, well, you'll know. <laughs> and um, surprisingly, he was right, you know. You, you know. <laughs> but uh, we had some flights. Um, as I say there, we had some, um, some trike launches. Our... We had a, uh, a standoff missile, we'd call it, and I'd put that in quotes, standoff, an anti-radiation missile, which we were to use to shoot against the, um, against the radar sites. Um, we didn't have enough of them, so the majors got to fire uh, the Shrike, and we didn't, you know. So the captains, we were captains, and, you know, there were a couple crews with captains on them. We didn't get to fire one because, you know, there weren't enough of them. So anyway, that, that part of the program really sucked. <laughs> we deployed to, um, we left our training completed to uh, Takli, Thailand on the 3rd of July, 1966, arrived on the 4th of July, July 1966. Now, I thought when I was putting this presentation together, well, maybe somebody doesn't know where Thailand is, you know. And uh, so here it is on this map here. And uh, here's Japan, here's China, Russia, India. Uh, and this is Thailand right here. And about where under the T is there in Thailand is about where Takli Royal Thai Air Force Base is. Uh, and the missions that we were going to fly, of course, were here into the uh, area of North Vietnam right here. Uh, so that's where it is. Now you all know where Thailand is when I talk about it. We arrived there, as I said, the 4th of July, 1966. Uh, we had been flying. We ferried our aircraft over. We had six airplanes. Uh, uh, eight crews. Two crews went ahead, you know, on um, KC-135s to get everything set up for us. So we arrived there the 4th of July, 1966. We flew from Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, Nevada, to um, Sacramento, uh, to one of the air material areas to get uh, some modifications onto our airplanes, and we headed out with tankers. 
um, and flew to Hickam, Hawaii. Uh, we stopped. We got drunk in Hickam, Hawaii. Um, we got up the next morning, and we flew from Hickam to uh, Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. And we sort of did the same thing there. You know, we were, we were uh, young guys full of testosterone going to war, going to show our stuff, you know. And uh, So the second day we were at uh, Anderson Air Force Base, Guam. The next, uh, next leg of the journey was from there to uh, Okinawa. And we stopped and we got drunk there. And uh, then flew down, stopped at Saigon for a little bit, and then flew on into to Thailand. Uh, so we weren't in very good shape when we got there. A, uh, one of our guys there in the, uh, the wing commander was there giving his welcome briefing, and one of the guys was in the front row, and he was much the worse for wear after, you know, those four days of flying and imbibing, and, and uh, fell asleep during the briefing, and the wing commander absolutely went ballistic. I mean, he just really, uh, you know, uh, reacted inappropriately, and... Uh, you know, so we, you know, we almost were sent off the base right there. But, uh, <laughs> but I want to talk to you about some of the challenges. You know, every organization that ever went into war had their own challenges and, and unique challenges. And I want to tell you about those that we faced here in, in Takli, Thailand. And I'm going to talk about each one of these. Uh, restrictive rules of engagement, uh, what our living conditions were like, uh, the equipment that we had, and, and its suitability for the tasks that we had. Uh, munitions shortcomings and shortages because uh, that, that was really important. Uh, the rules of engagement, you know, have been talked about probably in every presentation there's ever been given about the Vietnam Air War, so I won't dwell on them here. But just to say that, you know, some of them here there were uh, prohibited areas around Hanoi and Haiphong, the two major cities in North Vietnam, that you couldn't even fly over them. You couldn't go, go even go into these areas. The harbors and the ships were off limits. You know, the, uh, it was not a declared war. Uh, some of the ships coming into the harbor were Dutch, uh, were French, were British, uh, all bringing supplies in there. They were off limits, of course. And um, so um, I saw a picture in intelligence one day. I went in there, and there was a, 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 a loading area off the harbor there in Haiphong, and they're in canisters like an engine canister comes in, you know. There were probably 300 canisters with surf stair missiles in them and had been downloaded off the ships and were there ready for, uh, you know, to be transshipped to a, you know, to a missile site somewhere. Excellent target. Boy, wouldn't you love to go hit that? And, uh, but it was on a restricted target list. So instead of taking out those 300 missiles when they were sitting there in the canister, you know, you went in and you flew in the airplane and you took them on one at a time, you know, which is a, really is a shame. The uh, third bullet there is a, um, um, a uh, statement attributed to Lyndon Johnson. I've never been able to track it down to see if he really said this or when he said it, but it sure sounds like something that he said, you know. And that uh, them boys can't hit an outhouse without my say-so. And... Um, uh, there were restrictions on airfields. We flew by, um, you know, the airfields on the way up going to a target. You fly by Capra, one of the other airfields, and you'd even see MiGs taxing out, ready to come up and take off and come after you. The rules of engagement were so restrictive that you couldn't attack those MiGs until they were off the ground and had their wheels in the well. 
Now, who the hell thought of that? You know, that's just terrible. But but the rules. We also had uh, you couldn't attack another aircraft without first without visual identification first. And that, again, goes back to um, a, a lot of the uh, aircraft going in there were um, aircraft belonging to people that were allies of us, you know, in another conference or something, in a, you know, in another treaty. And um, so, you, you know, our, our air-to-air fighters gave up their advantage of beyond visual range missiles by having to wait up, you know, close in on the guy, see that he was, in fact, a big 17 or big 19 back up again, you know, to get back and where you, you know, were in range of the missiles. So a lot of stuff there that was really, you know, poorly done. I want to talk about our living conditions a little bit, sleep and food. Probably things that we all take for granted, right? You know, we're going to be someplace and we're going to have some living conditions that are really nice. I, I, I talked to you about being in Guam in 1965, um, uh, Larry the Muse in the crowd here, and he was there with me at the same time. Um, we were flying missions into South Vietnam, and um, we had uh, nice air-conditioned quarters. We had plenty of food. We flew about one day out of three. So the other two days, uh, the blue bus pulled up in front of the, the barracks at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. We got our golf clubs and we got on the bus and it took us across the island to the Navy golf course. And uh, we played 36 holes of golf and the bus came and picked us up at 5 o'clock and took us back. And we went to the club and had a you know, few drinks and, and, uh, and uh, some food. Now, contrast to this, a year later, you know, here we are in Takli, Thailand at uh, one of the premier fighter bases. Uh, this is it. <laughs> Sort of nice, isn't it? You know, it's made out of teak, you know, so it's sort of high class. But um, this is uh, the hooch that we lived in. Uh, these panels on the side here, um, you know, if it's raining really hard and the wind is blowing straight, you go out and you, you drop the panels down, you know, and it keeps the moisture out. Um, but uh, the rest of the time, to get a little airflow, these panels that are long here and those along the side here, you raise them up and see this board here, and there's one there, you... You raise it up and you stick the board in the corner there to keep the panel up and, um, and allow a little earth, air circulation to go through there. Inside this hooch, there are um, about 10 bunks down each side there and about four big ceiling fans hang, hanging from the ceiling there. And, uh, and that's it. Uh, 10 bunks have got uh, racks on them and mosquito netting because there's a, you know, a lot of uh, malaria over there. Though, so... But anyway, and um, you know what happens when you um, fly airplanes all day long? Uh, they have to be fixed at night. So at night, uh, about a mile away is a, uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the maintenance area, and uh, they run engines almost all night long. So uh, part of the reason, and I'm going to show you some loss figures for, uh, for the weasels and for as well as for the wing at the time, Part of the reason, I think, anyway, just my personal experience from being there, that the loss rates are so high was actually aircrew fatigue. You know, that, uh, you know, the only saving grace was that drinks at the bar were 15 cents. So, uh, but, you know, you can only, you know, uh, do that very long uh, for only a short period of time, even, even you know, young uh, people like we were then. So, but... But no air-conditioned quarters. There were a few uh, trailers, you know, that some of the, uh, the uh, 
field grade people had, the majors had, but, you know, the rest of us uh, guys uh, were in these things and, uh, and uh, you know, not a, not a very uh, conducive environment for, you know, uh, being very rested. Uh, we we're also uh, uh, were out of food for a good period of this time. I remember one morning after coming back from a sortie and I went to the, we had the officer's club. It was air conditioned. And uh, the waitresses were all young Thai girls, uh, all very proper. You know, I don't think I ever saw uh, any hanky-panky going off between the, the, the Thai girls and, and, the, and, the, and the fighter pilots while I was there. I think they were all from fairly good families. They spoke broken English. They had a weird sense of humor. And I remember going in there for lunch, and I went in, and I looked at, looked at the menu, and the girl came up and said, what do you have? And I said, uh, I'll have a cheeseburger. No, I have cheeseburger. And, okay. And I looked down there and what else they had there. And, and uh, I said, um, okay, how about, uh, how about um, grilled cheese sandwich? No, I have grilled cheese sandwich. I thought, oh, okay. It's getting serious now, you know. And um, there was something else on the menu. And I said, well, how about that? And she said, no, I have and I said, you know, I thought, well, this is not, the, I can go through the whole menu this way, you know. And I said, well, what do you have? She says, have eggs. I said, hey, that's it? You have eggs? He said, have eggs. I said, okay. I thought, well, breakfast, you know, at noon, that'd be okay. So I said, um, okay, give me three eggs scrambled and some toast. And she just got red in the face and she stomped her foot and she says, no, have toast. Have eggs. <laughs> and uh, so... But, and I, I mentioned in the other slide about munitions shortages. Um, and I remember reading the Stars and Stripes when I was over there. It was about August or September of 66. And the, the headline was, um, Secretary of the Air Force denies munitions shortage. Munition shortage. Um, and, and going out to the airplane, and, and at that time our, our standard ordnance load on a uh, on the Wild Weasel aircraft was two AGM-45s, the uh, strike missiles, and two pods of 2.75 rockets. So we had 38 rockets, two AGM-45s. The, uh, the, the single-seat Ds that flew with us normally had a center line with six 500-pound bombs on there. And uh, going out there and, and getting ready for a mission, you'd have one strike on the Weasel. Nothing. No rockets. Not two strikes, one strike. And um, going over to our uh, D-man or uh, D-model wingman and looking at him, instead of having six 500-pound bombs on there, he'd have two. And uh, you know, you talk about, um, um, you know, you're the, and it just broke the crew chief's hearts to give you an airplane like that with that. And I said, you know, I asked the crew chief, is this all you got? Is one strike? And he said, yes, sir. That's all they gave us. And um, so, you know, you were expected to go up and fly the sortie just as you would any other time, but with, with not enough munitions on the airplane to do the job. Uh, I, I looked up in the archives and, and found this, this uh, 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 quote here, which I paraphrased, and, and it's, really, it's really craftily worded, isn't it? You know, I mean, you're going up there instead of with... Uh, with um, uh, 70 bombs, you're going to go out there and drop 20 on the target. So the Secretary of the Air Force said, you know, there's a shortage, but it's not keeping our pilots from attacking their targets. 
Well, that's true. You know, as far as that goes, that's something you'd say to Congress, and Congress would think, oh, well, everything's hunky-dory, uh, when in fact it isn't. You know, you, sure, you can attack the target, but you're not doing a whole lot of damage because you don't have a whole lot of munitions. Um, the munitions, um, they were short, and, uh, but I want to talk to you here a second, too, about, uh, about the equipment we were given to go find missile sites. You know that the United States Air Force would not send you out to do a job like this without giving the very best equipment that's available. And, uh, and uh, so I want to tell you how great the equipment was. It really was uh, state-of-the-art. Uh, this is uh, the radar warning receiver, and these went into most of the TAC fighter aircraft. The, um, in, in this, the airplane is, is right in the center there, and uh, this the strobe going out behind you is something about at your 7 o'clock position. The surface air missile radar are these two strobes right here, one there and one there. Uh, it has, uh, it has two radar beams. It only has more than that, but for tracking purposes, it has one that tracks you in elevation and one that tracks you in azimuth, and they're both displayed like that. Uh, as you can see, they're about 15, 20 degrees apart. Um, so as you look at this, the, the surface air missile site is either right about here or right about here, and the accuracy of this equipment is plus or minus 17 degrees. So that surface air missile site now might be right here, or he might be over here. So, but, uh, so it was sort of an art to try to find the site. The backseat, the, the, the electronic warfare has, officer had some better equipment. He had this receiver here, which, which was a little more accurate than the other. The, um, and and here's a, this is an eye test for you old fighter pilots out there. Where's the same site? I had this slide in my in my box of slides for years, and I couldn't figure out what the heck it, I had it for. And um, I, I want, you to, I want to, you to imagine this problem. You're, you're zipping along here at about 8,000 feet. You're going about 500 miles an hour. And uh, you're looking at the left window and the right, and you're looking ahead. And um, you're trying to find where the missile site is. Well, there are some terrain features you can see here, some uh, cultivated fields here. It looks like maybe a river going up through here. Uh, where the banks have collapsed, where there's fresh earth there, maybe a village here, uh, some more cultivated fields over here. And, uh, but I've made it easier for you because I've, I've uh, uh, readjusted the slide, the slide and I put the missile site right in the middle. And there's the missile site right there. This one happens to be unoccupied, but here's a, a launcher position. There's one there. There's six of them all around the, the lake. And the revetments in the area in the center here for... Um, for the vans or the radar vans and things like that. So the, the point is they're not easy to find, you know, and the equipment is the, the best we have at the time, but it's not great either. Our, our standoff missile, I told you, we, our, our majors fired these before, you know, when we were in training. Uh, this is the AGM-45 Shrike. It was a Navy missile when the war started. Uh, we did not have any standoff missiles in the Air Force. And uh, we got some from the Navy on loan. But uh, just to give you an idea of what the, the, the geometry is of trying to attack a missile site, here's the, let's say the missile site is right there, and you're coming in from up here. Here is, here is the outside range of where the guy on the ground can hit you, can shoot at you. That's about 19 miles away from the site. Um, and you have to be sort of creative as you're flying in this area here. Until you get in here, here's where you can shoot your missile at him, seven miles. 
And here's where your 2.75 rockets can hit them. So, so it's, it's sort of a, you know, uh, as I say, you have to be a little creative in there about what you're doing. I've, I've got a, a few letters home here that I wanted to share with you that I wrote while I was over there. This, uh, like I say, we arrived there the 4th of July. This is on the 9th of July. And um, uh, it was interesting. You know, we were losing people every day. Haven't flown yet. We're not getting free mail here because we're not in the combat zone. So, uh, you know, which I always thought was interesting. Uh, we're, in, we're in the O Club. It's hot outside. 11th of July. I've been there seven days now. Still hadn't flown. Um, at that time, the uh, yeah, they didn't really know much how to use the wild weasels. And if the, uh, if the weather was bad in the primary target area, usually the wild weasels, they just canceled them out. You didn't go on any easy sorties at that time. Um, and this is, you know, kind of typical what, uh, letter home. Sitting around, it's getting pretty old. The weather's still hot. The club is out of meat and a lot of other things, and I'm not flying. <laughs> other than that, everything's just great. <laughs> the, um, finally flew. I've uh, got my first mission, only 99 more to go. And, but it was a dull mission. Went to a secondary target. The 14th of July, got myself a library card today. You know? <laughs> Um, our first loss of our uh, eight crews happened on the 23rd of July. Gene Pemberton, Ben Newsom got hit by surf stair missile. Uh, Buddy Reinbold, another of our Wawa's pilots, was flying a D model that day. Uh, got his hand shot up really bad and, his, and uh, holes in his arm and had 87 holes in the airplane. Um, 5th of August, 56, finally saw some action. Flew a good one today. Killed two SAM sites. This up flying north, this up north flying is the greatest. I can't believe I said that, you know. <laughs> I cannot believe I said that. You talk about, um, you know, testosterone-laden young people. You know, you <laughs> But anyway, um, let's, I'm going to tell you a war story here. 7th of August, 1966 was... Uh, a day where we lost uh, a record number of aircraft over North Vietnam. And it was, uh, it was called Black Sunday when you still read histories from that era. We took off here from Takli, Thailand, went out over uh, Da Nang here, up the coast, refueling with uh, KC-135 tankers in this area. And the targets were a series of targets in here in an area called the Northeast Railway. Very heavy defended area uh, that went from about uh, the Hanoi area here up into China. Uh, a major transportation link where a whole lot of uh, everything, all uh, uh, supplies came in there. That many, m many of them came in that way. Um, Ed and I took off early in the morning, uh, flew up here. We got about here, still on the tanker, and we heard um, uh, emergency beepers going off. Already two airplanes had been shot down. Uh, we headed in over the coast there, um, picked out a uh, surf-to-air missile site to launch our strike at. We launched a missile, uh, AGM-45, at the strike. He went off the air at the appropriate time. Um, the weather was terrible. Towering cumulus clouds, uh, tops about 40,000 feet, probably uh, five-tenths coverage of the, of the area, and a haze below that. So it was not really a good, good weather conditions to be hunting missile sites. Uh, we turned to um, go after a second missile site, and just as we turned, the uh, site launched at us. And I 
he, I called Ed in my Thomas voice and said, Lance! <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, actually I said, we have a launch at 2 o'clock. <laughs> and, uh, and Ed uh, pushes the airplane over, lights the burner, and down we go. And the first missile comes by, and Ed pulls up and turns into it, and it goes underneath it, underneath us. Second comes by just a few seconds later, and, and Ed managed to dodge that also again. Uh, we're running a little bit out of airspeed. We're getting a little bit slow now. The third missile coming at us right out of a cloud bank, and uh, we're about out of maneuverability. There was just no place to go. The missile was right there and, uh, and exploded and uh, did a real uh, job on the airplane. Okay, now I'm going to ask you for, to help me. I'm going to ask you to help me with the rest of this part of the story here. I'm going to, when I count to three, I want you all to take a real deep breath and hold it. And don't let it out and don't breathe until I tell you you can breathe, okay? Can you do that? Okay. And I'm, and I'm going to be telling you some story while you're holding your breath, so. Okay. One, two, three. Okay. <gasps> okay. All right. So here we are in the airplane. And uh, most of the brunt of the missile sight hits the gun drum of the, air, of the cannon. Over 1,000 rounds of 20-millimeter ammunition blew up, took the nose of the airplane off. Could see nothing through the smoke except the uh, fire warning light, which says your airplane's on fire, and the master caution light, which is on also, which says you've got something wrong with some of your systems in the airplane. And, um, and I couldn't breathe. Didn't want to breathe this cordite because it probably is going to do some serious damage to your lungs forever. Okay, so keep holding your breath. Don't, don't let it go yet. Back here on this back panel is, a, um, is the auxiliary canopy jettison handle. It's a handle that I've pushed many times. And it's got a hinge pin in the middle. You push one end, the other end comes up. You grab it and you pull up on it. The canopy goes. And that's a good thing at this point in time because that means fresh air is going to come in. Don't keep your breathing yet. <laughs> I can't find it. I cannot find it. And I really, really, really want to take a breath. But I don't dare breathe this crap in that's in the air. Couldn't find it. It's back there. I knew it's there. I, I used to put my hand on it all the time. Couldn't find it. Okay, I'm, I've really got to take a breath. Don't you breathe yet, then. And, um, but the, the other way to get rid of the canopy is by rotating the ejection seat handles. And I had every intention of leaving that airplane at that moment. I thought, the heck with this. You know, no, there's no point sitting here, you know, dying of asphyxiation. So I reached down and grabbed hold of the ejection seat handles and rotated them up. You can breathe now. <laughs> the canopies go off the aircraft. When you, when you rotate your, the handles in an F-105, it does, it's a two-position thing. You rotate the handles, the seat bottoms out, canopy goes, and the seat is armed, ready to go. And then a trigger sort of flops loose from, from the ejection seat, and you've got to actually rotate the handles up and then open your hands and grab the trigger and squeeze it. And, and I was about halfway through that process of grabbing those uh, triggers and squeezing it, and, and somebody said, well, well, maybe you better think about this a minute, you know. And I looked around, of course, the, the, uh, the, the smoke had all gone out. Uh, the fire warning light had gone out. Um, you could look out, and, um, you know, you saw blue sky out there and a few white puffy clouds over here, and, you know, everything really seemed pretty good there. Uh, so... Um, 
anyway, the first thing you want to do in that circumstance, because I decided it was going to stay a while longer, is in a two-seat airplane, the first thing you want to do is find out if you're by yourself or not. <laughs> so I went to the call position on the intercom box, and, and I said, Ed, you there? And uh, Ed said, yeah, Mike, are you there? And um, which only goes to show you that there's some, some uh, proof to the theory that testosterone makes you stupid. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but um, anyway, Ed says, I'm going to try to get us out of here. <clears throat> so there we are with an open cockpit airplane doing about uh, 340 knots. Uh, Ed headed out towards the coast. And, uh, you know, life was good. Decided to stay there. I looked out. There was a huge hole in the leading edge of the left wing. Top of the tail had been taken off, um, but at least the fire warning light was out. We head out towards the coast, and we go across a place called Camp Fa. Camp Fa is, uh, is on the coast. There's iron mines there. There's also an anti-aircraft gunnery school there. So as we're heading out towards, we're getting close to the coast, and I, I say, Ed. They're shooting at us, and there was a big circle of black 57-millimeter flak, probably a 1,000 yards back. And I said, oh, Rods, I got it. And the second burst of 57-millimeter uh, flak was probably about 500 yards back. Uh, third burst went right off right under the aircraft and jolted the aircraft pretty hard. Um, at that time, our wingman joined up. We had lost our wingman when we were dodging the first surface-to-air missiles. It, it's really hard to to do formation SAM evasive maneuvers, you know. Um, so usually it's sort of every man for himself and uh, try to join up later. Well, Pete Pittman was our wingman at the time, and he joined up. He slid under us and probably had about a 100-knot uh, overtake, you know. So he slid under us, and he, he slid way out here, and the flak started tracking him out. Well, you know, which was, was good for us because they'd have hammered us there for sure. Um, the controls went out about that time. We had just crossed over the coast, and, and the, the, the controls went slack. And um, Ed said, well, you know, we need to get out of here. So I, I went ahead and bailed out, and he bailed out about uh, probably about three or four seconds later. Uh, got under canopy in the airplane, uh, looked out and saw the airplane spiraling down, and it was the airplane was down about 3,000 feet, and it blew up. So the, um, the fire warning light had gone out, but obviously there was a fire still burning in there, you know, so it blew up before it hit the ground. Good thing you got out of it when we did. Um, it was interesting. I, I was really uh, pretty proud of the way I was handling everything. You know, I, you have a, a survival kit attached to you, and I pull the handle on the survival kit, and uh, the kit fell down. It's got a, um, about a one-inch uh, white nylon uh, uh, cord or, or tape that goes from uh, you to the survival kit, and then another extension that goes from the survival kit to your one-man raft. So, you know, you've got everything you need there. I uh, pulled a uh, release of survival kit, and I looked at that handle, and I thought, you know, that'll make a dandy souvenir, you know. And I put it in my G-suit pocket, and it's, um, it's hanging on the wall back home still. And um, all that's left of aircraft 358, by the way. And, um, but anyway, I was, I was pretty calm and cocky that I was remembering everything that I had learned in survival school. You know, and I, I thought, okay, you know, and I took my radio out. I had a, you know, I had a couple, we all, all both carried, we all carried 
survival radios in our uh, survival vest. So I pulled it out and was listening to the rescue going on, you know, enjoying my first parachute ride, and it was really cool. And and uh, went over in my mind about all the stuff that we were supposed to do about landing in the water, because, you know, it was going to be a water landing. And I remember that, um, okay, the raft hits the water first, because it's the lowest thing. And then you pull on your risers to where you've got your face into the wind. And when your uh, feet hit the water, you release your canopy so it blows off away from you and doesn't drown you. And I, I thought, Gilroy, you're, you're cooler than John Wayne. I mean, you know, you're really doing great here. So down we go. The raft hits the water. My feet hit the water. I release the canopy. Now, I'm going to count to three again, then I want you to hold your breath again. Are you ready? One, two, three. <gasps> okay, hold your breath. Don't breathe now. And I'm sinking like a rock. For a second time today, I'm going to run out of air. I'm sinking like a rock. You know, I've got boots on. I've got a uh, 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 G-suit, you know, which has got flares. I've got a big buck general hunting knife. I've got my pistol. I've got flares, I've got baby water bottles, and I've got uh, survival radios, and I'm really, really, really heavy, and I am sinking like a stone. I had forgotten to inflate my life preserver, my Mae West, you know. Okay, well, that ought to be an easy problem to fix. Don't breathe yet. (laughs) And um, because there are two plastic tabs, one here and one on this side. And um, either one of them, if you could just find one and pull it, it one, one is uh, the CO2 cartridge from one side is enough to inflate the whole thing. I couldn't find it. Could not find it. And, uh, and I'm still going down. I'm probably 30 feet underwater at this time. And I really, really, really want to take a breath. And, uh, you know, that, uh, and I just know that if I do, I'm dead. I'm going to drown right there. And uh, I can't find the things. You know, they had shifted somehow or other when I didn't turn the bailout or something. Could not find them. Was just about ready to take the biggest breath of salt water in my life when the one-inch nylon cord just shows right up in front of my face. And uh, I grabbed that thing and I pulled myself up and I jumped in the raft. You can breathe now. (laughs) Jumped in the life raft and had about 30 seconds of self-criticism that maybe I wasn't as cool as John Wayne after all. And uh, so anyway, I was there in the raft and it was safe. Um, I pulled up the survival kit to, to um, see what was in there. There's supposed to be a lot of things in the survival kit. You're supposed to have a, um, a 22 Hornet rifle, you know, in pieces, you know, that, uh, with a stock that you can put together, you know, to go, you know, hunt antelope or deer or something like that. Uh, you're supposed to have food, you know, pemmican and all sorts of good things to eat. You're supposed to have uh, canned water. Uh, a couple extra radios supposed to be in there. Uh, survival manual that you can read, you know, as to what to do when the sharks are coming after you. Um, and, but you're supposed to have shark repellent in there and a sea dye marker and all sorts of good things. Pull up my survival kit. I open the lid, and there are two pair of black wool socks in there. That's it. That's it. Everything else had been stolen out of the survival kit. Two pair of black wool socks. I guess whoever stole the stuff. Didn't know what to do with black wool socks when it's 95 degrees out and the humidity is 95. So anyway, I threw that back over the side. and uh, We all carried plastic um, baby bottles with water in, you know, as our own personal uh, waters. You know, so I took one of those out and drank it and got the radio out and was listening to what was going on. And things were 
looking up again, about three or four foot swells in the water. Uh, I couldn't see my pilot. He was probably 100 yards away or less, but I couldn't see him because of the, of the swells. Um, and we're in the water for about an hour and a half, and here comes an HU-16 out of Da Nang. Now, I didn't know it was an HU-16 out of Da Nang, and it was an HU-16. And this is, this is deceptive here because this is one that says United States Air Force on the side. So anyway, this HU-16 comes in, and I can hear him on the radio picking Ed up, and I, don't, I haven't set off my flare yet to let him know where I was. As soon as they picked him up, I'll let my flare, and they said, okay, I see, we see the other guy, we see the other pilot. I did not take exception to the fact that they were calling me a pilot. I thought, well, it would be nice to be rescued anyway. And, uh, but here comes the HU-16 over, and it's camouflaged. And all our planes are camouflaged over there, but they still had a star on there, and they still said U.S. Air Force. This was camouflaged, but it didn't have any of this U.S. Air Force stuff on there. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this is probably some commie trick of some sort. Um, but what had happened, I found out later, was that the, the, it was a new arrival airplane. It had gone into the paint shop, you know, to get its, uh, you know, the Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia paint job on it. And they had to put it on the schedule because they needed an airplane, so they pulled it out before they finished the paint job. So here comes this HU-16 taxing up with no markings, and I thought, I don't know who's, what country this airplane belongs to. And in the door is an Oriental in a wetsuit. <laughs> and um, I reach for my pistol, and this little kid shouts, don't shoot, I'm Hawaiian. <laughs> uh, uh. So... Anyway, we get in the airplane. Uh, this is Ed in the raft. This was taken out of the pilot's window of, the, of him there. He swears that's me, and I swear, I swear I'm bright enough I, you know, not to have my hands in the water in the South China Sea that has the highest density of poisoned sea snakes of any place in the world. And, um, but that, that was Ed, and, and uh, that picture made the front page of the uh, New York Times, I believe. Uh, Ed is badly damaged when he got in the airplane. Uh, he had he had back trouble before, but uh, the seat at the uh, the ejection seat of the 105 hits you with 18 instantaneous G's. So if you're a 200 200 pound person, you've got a 3600 pound weight on your immediately on your spine, and hardly anybody does that without getting a compression fracture of some kind. And I got a compression fracture to T13, I think, or T14. But um, at that time, I weighed about 170 pounds, so, you know, uh, it was minor damage compared to Ed. Ed never got to fly uh, ejection seat aircraft again. He went uh, flew C-47s after that. Um, but we got rescued and went back to Da Nang. Uh, the rest of the day wasn't good. Uh, the two that got shot down before us, John Wendell and Will Gideon, were prisoners of war. Ed and I were the only ones rescued. About 15 minutes past us, Bob Sandvik and Tom Pyle, another weasel crew, went down just on the outskirts at Cap Airfield. Uh, Charlie Fryer and uh, uh, Dick Moran were uh, Navy pilots that were shot down that day, and Mike Brazelton from the 354th was shot down shortly after us. Excuse me. Pardon me. The, um, an interesting day. Um, it, it was a record for the most losses, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, for quite a while. Uh, the next day was just as bad. The, uh, the next day we lost our operations officer in the 354 Tech Fighter Squadron. Some of you may, may uh, know him, Jim Kassler. Uh, Jim Kassler was a, was, our, was a major. He's the only guy I think that has received three awards of the Air Force Cross. Uh, Jim was a, um, a very aggressive guy. He was a B-17 or, or a B-29 gunner in World War II. Uh, was a Korean War ace, and uh, then was, like I say, was our operations officer. Uh, we lost another wild weasel aircraft on the 12th of August, Davis and Metcalf. They both got out okay, but the airplane was, uh, was, had to go to the depot to be damaged. Uh, Joe Brand, Don Singer were shot down doing road wrecking, another weasel crew on the 17th. And after 45 days of being there, of our 16 people, four were dead, three were wounded, and two were prisoners of war. Um, not a very auspicious start, um, but the, uh, the, the problems or losses were just as high in the squadron. This was the 354th Tac Fighter Squadron, um, one of the three squadrons at Tok Lee at this time. There was also the 333rd and the 357th. Um, and it says 21 aircraft lost. And does anybody know how many airplanes a fighter squadron usually has? 24. 24. 24 aircraft. So, okay, here, you know, July through December. We've lost 21, okay? Uh, seven pilots or electronic warfare officers were killed. Nine were prisoners of war. Eight were rescued. We had lost uh, two squadron commanders and an ops officer during that time. And these figures are slightly misleading because, as I said, of the ones that are rescued, uh, not all of them are fit for duty. You know, some of them, you know, can't fly jets anymore because of the ejection sequence. Uh, the wing was a little, uh, not quite as bad. As I said, there were three squadrons. Uh, you know, the wing lost 40 aircraft during this time, 13 pilots or EOs killed, 16 guys POWs, and uh, 14 rescued. Now, that was pretty bad, but I'll tell you the reason, I think the reason that the losses were so high at that time, um, crew fatigue, I think, really played a major part in that, you know, that... Uh, you know, you went up and you, you know, you had these high-stress high situations that you went through, high doses of adrenaline, came back, blew off some steam at the bar with a few drinks, went back, you know, got an hour or two of sleep, you know, with engines running, which was not very restful. And I think eventually that accumulates and, you know, you're just a little bit slower in your reflexes or your decision-making process isn't quite as sharp as it should be. Um, but anyway... I want to fast forward now a few months and uh, to another another mission on 10th March of 1967. Um, and this time we have a lot better leadership. Um, I, I know in the 354 squadron we had we had good guys leading it before, but uh, a guy by the name of Phil Gast came in there, um, and, and um, where before we'd fly the morning sortie and we'd go to the bar and we'd drink all day. Uh, Phil said, no, we're going to do, do a lot of stateside piloting stuff. So, um, you know, we're going to have a, my extra, I, you know, everybody got extra duties. I was a maintenance liaison officer. I was a public affairs officer and probably a couple other jobs in there. And um, so I had a job to do when I got back from flying. You know, I had to go do this job. And we all griped about it because, you know, what the heck kind of a deal is this, you know. But, uh, but it kept us out of the bars, and it got us a lot sharper. Uh, we had new quarters. The uh, a place called a, the guys called the Ponderosa down by the main gate were built. Nice brick quarters. Uh, 
um, air conditioned, um, way far away from the flight line. The hooches uh, were all closed in on the sides and air conditioned, so you know it was a you know you can go in there at 10 o'clock in the morning, and it was dark and it was cool, and uh, and they were soundproof, so you could you know you could go in and, and sleep. Uh, the food and the weapon shortages were solved, and we. And I guess the, one of the important things, too, is we had enough experienced crews at that time that, uh, that we could train the new guys coming in. Uh, you know, we, could, we didn't have to send them to Hanoi the first day by themselves. We could take them as a, you know, to Roof Package 1, or we could put them in our wing and, you know, and let them get a, a little experience that way. But, um, but this is a group I'm going to talk about here on the 10th of March, 67, the 354th TAC Fighter Squadron. The... Um, the target on this particular day was uh, was the the Taiwan steel mill, and it's right about there where my shaky hand is pointing to, right about north of Hanoi. Um, there's a northeast railway that I said told you you know went up northeast towards China. Uh, there was a northern railway that went directly north, and that's where the Taiwan steel mill. General Momeyer, the seventh, the four-star general in charge of uh, Seventh Air Force, in his memoirs wrote about. Uh, the defenses in North Vietnam and singled out some that were uh, worse than others. The Hanoi Rail Yard, uh, Viet Tri, uh, Taiwan Steel Mill uh, were three of the ones that he mentioned. Very, very heavily defended area. Um, the 354th uh, Tac Fighter Squadron Commander Phil Gass was leading the mission that day, as well as uh, leading the flight, the, the uh, flak suppression flight. Uh, the weasel flight was made up of uh, uh, Dave Everson and, and uh, Joe Luna as lead, uh, Bill Heft as a D wingman number two. Bill Heft was a KC-135 co-pilot who had been put into fighters, which is a pretty common thing at that time. Uh, Merle Bethelson and I, Merle was my third pilot uh, at that time, uh, as number three, and uh, Ken Bell as number four. Ken Bell was on the wing staff. Uh, we were all captains, and he was a major. He was going to give us a stand of Al ride for our, uh, on this mission. And uh, good luck with that. <laughs> so we take off, and we, uh, we, uh, we head on up from Tockley. We refuel over Laos, go up over here and turn uh, about about here, turn and head south, heading towards the steel, steel mill. Uh, we just head south, and we're about uh, 8,000 feet, and we're descending for some reason. We're down at 6,000 feet, and I called Morales and said, we're getting way too low. Uh, we're down to 5,000 feet, 4,000 feet, and I said, Merle, we've got to pull up. We're too low. Merle is a, uh, you, you know, a uh, indoctrinated wingman. You know, he's, he's, uh, he believes in following his leader. You know, if the leader goes into the mountain, um, you know, uh, the rest of the flight goes in the mountain. Um, I didn't go to pilot school. I went to electronic warfare officer school, and they didn't teach us that. <laughs> so, so anyway, and then we hear two beepers, and uh, Dethels, or, uh, uh, Dave Everson and Joe Luna had been hit and uh, bail out almost immediately. They had been hit actually a little bit back further, but we didn't know it. When we started the descent, they had been hit at that time. And... Um, so anyway, they bail out. We've got two beepers. The strike force is, is probably 15 minutes from the target still. Um, uh, Bill Hefts calls. I'm hit really bad. I've got to, you know, get out of here. Uh, Merle 
and I take over, and Merle tells uh, Bill Hepps to join up on a, somebody coming off the target and go home with them. And uh, we head on in, in trying to attack the uh, missile site, which was guarding the area, which was just south of the uh, steel mill. Um, I line Merle up on the on the, um, the radar, and we fire a AGM-45 at it, and it doesn't do anything. Doesn't hit anything. Uh, I, I take him in over the target, over the SAM site, and he says, "I can't see it. I can't see it." So I said, "Give me another run in." He turns around, goes back to the right, uh, comes back in. Uh, the second run is way too short. You know, I, I need more time on that. Uh, the equipment that you have lines you up in azimuth. Um, so um, it, it doesn't give you – the range is a very, very iffy thing. You know, on the, on the receiver you have in the back seat, when you go over the site, those uh, – you know, you can two strobes like that. They'll drop maybe an eighth or a quarter of an inch and then pop back up. And if you're not really, really looking at it, you'll never see it. So, um, you know, uh, finding when you exactly go over the site is, is pretty hard to do. The second run was too short. I said, Merle, I need a longer run. So we went out to the south of the target, turned back in, and uh, as we start heading back in, we're, we're out of the flak here. The flak is ahead of us, but we were. Um, a flight of four MiG-17s comes in on us. And as we enter the flak, they're not having any part of that. And uh, they pull off, and we go into the flak, and that's about, that is the worst flak I think I've ever seen. And, and a lot of the guys who flew in World War II and flew in Vietnam said that's the worst flak they'd ever seen. Um, for those of you that have never, you know, uh, been in that situation, if you've been in a real big hailstorm, you know, and, and, you know, with a hail and hit, hitting the roof, or maybe you were even under a corrugated steel roof where the, where the hail was hitting, that's what it. That's what it sounded like. I mean, the, the stuff was just, you know, rattling off the aircraft. You know, and, and some was not rattling off the aircraft. Some was making holes in the aircraft, and um, and really heavy stuff. Anyway, we went through and we made our second homing run. The MIGs broke off. The uh, flak suppression flight with the fuel gas and um, and um, and his crew were just coming off the target. Max Brestel was his wingman. Um, they, uh, the the uh, flight of uh, four uh, MiG-17s is there, and they are coming off, and they're you know the, the MiG-17s are turning there, and, and uh, Max arms up the gun and shoots down one of them, and, and uh, you know it's on the radio. Max is a very excitable guy. I, I, he swears this is a, not a true story, but I know it is a true story. He's on the radio. He said, "I got a MiG. I got a MiG." And um, Phil Gas was not the. the uh, the mission commander was not one for, you know, loose talk on the radio. And uh, he said, shut up and get another one. <laughs> and, and, and he did. <laughs> you know, he did. Uh, the only dual MiG, kick, dual MiG kill from an F-105 with a gun in the war. You know, really well done. Phil Gass got a MiG, too. But anyway, we couldn't find the SAM site that time. Uh, I said, let's try another run in Merle, and we went back, and there was a function on the equipment that you call, it was called manual gate, that you could go to, and you could lock your receiver in the back seat up on one signal, and one signal only, and it was made for making training runs at Hawthorne, Nevada, or something like that, so I, anyway, for the fourth run, I locked the receiver into that, and sat there, and, and uh, we, we drove in until... Uh, back in the flak again, MIGs jumped us again and went off, and um, and uh, finally went in and, and on the fourth run found the missile site, 
bombed it. Um, and um, in the meantime, we did not know, but Ken Bell, our number four, who was our wingman, had uh, had uh, taken a hit and an aileron was hanging down, and so he could make left turns and not right turns. But he hung in there and didn't say anything. We got off the target and uh, went back and recovered at um, at Unorn. And uh, the, uh, this is a picture of the airplane at that time. This picture was painted by a good friend of mine, uh, Joe Klein, aviation artist, and I said, I said, Joe, we need more flack, you know. <laughs> but um, he was pretty proud of the airplane he painted, so he didn't want to put any more flack on there. But uh, the, the steel mill was a, was a good mission. Um, most of you knew, heard of Pardo's push, you know, Bob Pardo, when he, when he uh, his airplane was shot up and his wingman too, and, and uh, he had his uh, wingman drop his tail hook and pushed him out. That happened on this mission. That happened uh, about uh, half an hour after we left. Uh, Merle Dethelson received the Medal of Honor. Uh, Max Bressel got two uh, mid kills. Phil Gass got one. So it was a pretty good mission. Uh, glad to be home. You know, we got home. We, we landed and debriefed and at uh, one of the F-4 bases and then were cleared for a one-time flight to get our airplane home to Talkley. Um, that was about the last of my exciting missions uh, in April. This um, tall, good-looking guy here is me. And... Uh, you can, uh, that's uh, landing after my 100 missions. Uh, Bob Scott, our wing commander. Phil Gast, uh, uh, there with my 100 mission flight suit. Merle Dethelson. Uh I'm the happiest guy there because I don't have to fly anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, they all, and, and, uh, and my nice, my nice uh, flying boots there, you know, elephant hide flying boots. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, you, I had the wild weasel stencil on my on my uh, shorts. You you know you changed to put on your flight suit, and um, and that's the end of my war stories. But I had some observations to make, and I, I I know a lot of you guys are former military guys and former Air Force. These are some of the observations that came to me after this whole thing was over. You know, and, and uh, let you peruse them there. The first one there is that, you know, you always have leadership in an organization, but it always doesn't come from the top. You know, the guy with the eagles, you know, that's there, you know, uh, you know has a wing commander position or the DO position or whatever, even even some squadron commanders, um, you know, aren't always the, the real great combat leaders. We had uh, first lieutenants not too long out of the Air Force Academy who were probably better mission leads than some of the more senior people. Um, and, and we always had people that, that stood up and do a good job. Um, but it isn't always the leaders. It isn't always the guys that have the title of leaders. Um, and the bravest people don't always come out of the war with the most medals. Um, you know, we had guys there. I, I've read some write-ups of some guys that, that would come down, and after every mission they'd write themselves up for a distinguished flying cross. You know, or if they got shot at, they'd write themselves up for a silver star. And, uh, and but but most guys wouldn't do that. You know, they would not. They didn't give a damn about that. You know, you'd like to have maybe one for your mess dress. You know, but uh, but beyond that. But but like I say, there are a whole lot of people that come out of there. You know, and you read their resume, and boy, they sound like they're just really some hot stuff. Not so. And the best combat leaders don't always wind up as generals. We had uh, in the Wild Weasel program, we were pretty lucky. You know, with the uh, generals, we had uh, Chuck Horner made four stars. 
uh, Joe Ralston, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, made four stars. Uh, Dick Myers, made Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all wild weasel experienced guys. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of the best uh, mission leaders, um, Billy Sparks, you know, we were talking about Billy the other night. Uh, you know, the, uh, if you really wanted a, a combat leader who could inspire people to go do great things and then take you up there and, and do that, uh, you know, the kind of guy who'd, uh, you know, charge hell with a bucket of ice water. You know, those weren't the, weren't the guys that the Air Force really appreciated. You know, they they weren't shiny enough or they weren't uh, polite enough or, you know, uh, you know they, they stood around and scratched themselves or something, you know, and all that. You can't have that. So, you know, the, the right guys don't always get the top. You don't always get your combat leader. You know, you get something... In a lot of cases, that's a combination of, of a business manager and a little bit of leader and something like that thrown in. Um, a lot of that's self A lot of talkers don't always have the reason to do so. And I'm a little embarrassed about putting this in at the end about fighter pilots, but <laughs> but I had been um, yeah <laughs> yeah I am right. I had. Uh, when I first was associated with fighter pilots, and I, I spent most of my time after Tockley in, in uh, fighters, um, the, uh, you know, these people were arrogant, you know, they were cocky, uh, self-righteous, know-it-alls. Uh, they always wanted the prettiest girl when you went to the bar. Uh, you know, there was, there, there was little redeeming social value, you know. And, uh, like, uh, but they turned out to be just splendid people, you know, people you were, you know, uh, proud to be associated with. Uh, guys, like I said, you know, about Billy Sparks charging hell with a bucket of ice water. These guys, would, to a man, would do that. So, anyway, those are my observations. I mean, you know, I'll take credit for them. But, you know, don't ask you to agree with them. So that's it. Um, that's the end of my story. <laughs>